Good morning, everyone. It is a blessing to be here this morning. Today's sermon is titled The Triumph of the Cross. But before we begin, a quick word on logistics. Today's reading will actually be at the end of the sermon. And at that time, we'll also have some time set aside for communion. Sounds good? All right, let us begin. On a day that historians and geologists believe was April 3rd, AD 33, a young man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth was condemned of the political crime of sedition and the religious crime of blasphemy. He was sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, who was then prefect of the Roman province of Judea. But before he was killed, the Roman soldiers tortured him beyond recognition. They put a crown of thorns on his head, they put purple robes on him, and at some point they put a patibulum, the crossbar of a cross, on his shoulders. It weighed between 80 and 110 pounds. After this, they walked him for about 650 yards up a hill until they got up to a place called Calvary. Golgotha, or the place of a skull in Aramaic. There they crucified him and they left him to die. If you have read the story, you will know that there was nothing good about that Friday. It was not a good Friday for the inhabitants of the land who had the sun blocked out for three hours, only to be followed by an earthquake. It was not a good Friday for the priests in the temple, as that veil built by Herod the Great, which was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide and 12 inches thick, was torn right down the middle, and they were exposed to the terrifying presence in the Holy of Holies. It was not a good Friday for the disciples of this young rabbi, who watched him die at the hands of those he was supposed to defeat. It certainly was not a good Friday for this Jesus, who was condemned, humiliated, nailed to a cross, and died on that day. But the Apostle Paul makes the staggering claim that when this Jesus was condemned by Pontius Pilate, that it was actually God who was condemning sin as utterly sinful. That when this Jesus was humiliated, spat on, slapped, that it was actually God who was humiliating the powers of darkness. That when this Jesus was nailed to that cross, that it was actually God who was nailing to that cross the debt that you and I owed him. And that when this man died, that it was actually death itself that was being killed. But how can this be? How can Paul say such things? They did not hear what happened on that day. What sort of twisting of reality is this? What sort of bending of the truth is this? But then we learn that this Jesus rose from the dead three days later. A historic fact that no one has been able to disprove 2,000 years later to this day. 
And so we are forced to move from our original positions of deep suspicion of Paul to the place of mystery. Could it be true? Could Paul be right? Could that cross be the ultimate sign of victory instead of the greatest sign of defeat? I believe that the challenge with the cross is that it is the answer to a question. And because we were not there when the question was asked, we were not there when the question was posed, we struggle to understand the answer in all of its fullness. Let me explain. Have you ever walked into a room while someone was in the middle of answering a question? What does it feel like? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I listen intently to see if I can reverse engineer what the original question was so that I can better understand all of the details that I am hearing. This was particularly difficult for me in my first year in Canada because I would often show up late to my classes and I remember I would show up to my philosophy classes while the professor was in the middle of asking a question and some of those answers would take like 10 minutes and I would be there just asking myself what on earth could anyone have asked that would cause the professor to inflict such an answer on them. The cross of Christ is similar to this. And if we do not understand the question in all of its ugliness, then we cannot appreciate the answer in all of its beauty. At best, we might see elements of grace or victory in that cross, and at worst, we might not even pay any attention to it at all, because in our minds, the answer is not even relevant to us. Or we might find ourselves somewhere in the middle, like Mahatma Gandhi who said, I regard Jesus as a great teacher of humanity, but I do not regard him as the only begotten Son of God. My reason was not ready to believe literally that Jesus by his death and by his blood redeemed the sins of the world. I would argue that Gandhi did not understand the question, the fundamental reason why Jesus came into this world and why he died on that cross. And so in the next part of this sermon, we're going to look at the opposite event of the cross. It is called the fall of man. This is where the question was posed. You may have heard the story before. It talks about how Adam and Eve disobeyed God, having been tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat of. On that day, sin entered the world, and death entered the world through sin. I would like to explore three aspects of this story in order to frame the question that we're trying to get at. The first aspect of the story is sin. Now, what is sin? What is this thing that the Bible makes such a big deal of? Simply put, sin is what happens when morally responsible creatures like you and me exercise our will to make choices that do not align with God's will. That's all it is, and it seems harmless enough, doesn't it? 
but it is the theologians who help us to understand why this is such a big problem. And they point out two aspects of sin in order to clarify things. The first is that it has a penal component, which means that when we make these choices that do not align with our Creator's design, that we create an offense, and that that offense is, is punishable, and the punishment is death. Now, the cross of Christ was offensive in, God, in Paul's day. It was offensive to the Jews, and it was offensive to the Greeks. Do you suppose that the cross is offensive today? I would say yes, but not for the same reasons as it was offensive in Paul's day. It's offensive because today is an era where morality is subjective. You may be right, you may be wrong, it doesn't matter, whatever works for you. Where tolerance is the highest virtue. And the cross says that there is something so wrong with me, and there is something so wrong with you, that it is so wrong that it would take the death of somebody else to fix it. And the cross does not bother to apologize for that statement. The second thing about sin is that it has a legacy of dominating. What started as Adam disobeying God, we see it being manifested today. Take a family for instance. Sin would drive the father to drinking. And then it would drive the daughter to sleep around as she's seeking the attention of men. And then it would fill the mother with rage and with jealousy. And then it would drive the son to become abusive when he grows up and gets married because his wife reminds him too much of his mother. And then the granddaughter, who is born into all of this mess, her only way of feeling any form of control is to bully other kids at school. Do we need to speak about the sex traffickers, the suicide bombers, the mass shooters? Do we need to speak about those who seek ethnic cleansing, the, the tyrants and the dictators? Sin does not stop until it corrupts everything about human nature so that we no longer resemble the God in whose image we were created. The second thing I would like to talk about today is death. What is death exactly? Simply put, death means separation. Spiritual death is a separation of man from God. Physical death is a separation of body from spirit. If sin are the choices that we make that do not align with God's will, death are the realities that come about, that do not align with God's original design. You see, death comes in degrees. It doesn't just come at once. If it did, sometimes it would even be more merciful. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Some people are in such difficult circumstances that if death came at once, it might even be more merciful. But it comes in degrees. Sicknesses, fears, anxieties, 
All of these things are manifestations of death, and they remind us that a foreign agent has inserted itself, it has invaded us, and placed itself in between our inner man that delights in God's will, that has, a cho that has choices of its own, and our outer man which finds itself incapable of following through with those choices. We want to rejoice with our friend who has just told us this great news. Instead, we find ourselves being jealous of them. We want to tell the truth. Instead, we find ourselves telling a lie, even though the circumstances do not even require us to look good. We want to stand up and go for a walk, but our bodies refuse to move because of diseases and sicknesses. It is as though our bodies have minds of their own. We want to take a deep breath and relax and rest, but fear, anxiety, depression, they refuse to let us go. This is death. There is a gap between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. G.K. Chesterton was born in the late 1800. He was a poet, he was a writer, a philosopher. He was also an apologist, and he puts it so well. He says, in, in, in relation to this idea of death, that we are all born upside down, all of us. That since the fall of Adam, man has been born upside down. His quote is that the primary paradox of Christianity is that the ordinary condition of man is not his sane or his sensible condition. This is not how we were meant to be, even though it is how we all are. The normal itself is an abnormality. Even though in a world where everything is red and all the billions of people in the world today are red, just stay with me, somehow we all know that there is such a thing as pure and blazing white and that that is what we ought to be. And that this is the inmost philosophy of the fall. Any solution to the fall would have to give man the opportunity to be born again, but this time right side up, righteous. The third element that I would like to call out is the serpent, Satan, the devil, that personal malevolent being whose sole purpose is to overthrow God, and if he cannot, to destroy everything that God loves. You can almost imagine him just standing there, smiling and congratulating himself, as he watched the father in pain, asking Adam and Eve to leave his presence. On that day, the devil had successfully orchestrated two rebellions, one in heaven and one on earth. And in so doing, he revealed a weakness, in quotation marks, in the character of God. Let me explain. Divine love requires intimacy. God creates beings who have the free will to accept his love and to freely give back theirs. 
in an intimate fellowship similar to the Trinity. But when the devil corrupts that free will, because he knows that where there is a will, there is a way or possibility of corrupting it. If the devil succeeds in corrupting that will, then divine justice will require separation. This is a problem. I read a poll earlier this year that asked the question, is the world getting better? 77% of people believe that the world was getting better. That humans, as humans, were not as immoral as we used to be. And that technology and science has solved a lot of the challenges, a lot of the manifestations of death, like sickness and diseases and poverty. Even if I'm willing to concede these things, I believe that what people who responded failed to appreciate is that there is a personal, malevolent being whose sole purpose is to invent new forms of death and to come up with new ways to cause man to sin. So let us recap the problem that we're talking about. How do you pay the debt that man owes to God while breaking the dominance of sin in human nature while at the same time bridging the gap between God and man and who we are on the inside versus who we are on the outside, essentially giving birth to man but this time right side up. And how do you crush the head of the serpent? Wrap all of these up and you have the question. The question that Revelation describes as the scroll that no one could take or look at. This is a question at the heart of all of creation. It is the scroll that nobody could take or look at. You see, for all his faults, Adolf Hitler was right about one thing. He felt the man needed to evolve and he was in search of the Superman. But he was so wrong about how to do it. He wanted to wipe out any race that was not in line with his Superman. But God had already shown us that this would not work. He had wiped out the world and started again with one man, one good man and his family. And look where we are today. Gandhi was right. Good deeds and love and justice, yes. But that is not enough. God had shown us. He gave us ten things, only ten things that we should do. The theory of everything. And we could not do them. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could answer this question. No one could open this scroll. But unto us... A child was born 
and unto us a son was given. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Up until that point, the highest expression of God's love that we had seen was the creation of beings in his image. But now we would see God himself become man. Not for a day, not for a year, not even for 33 years, but forever. For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. And when Christ came, he said that I came not to abolish, but to fulfill the laws that God gave to you. I came to do the will of the Father, where you could only do your own will. I came to testify to the truth where the serpent fed Adam and Eve with a lie. I came to seek and to save that which was lost on the day that Adam fell. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for yours. I came to take your place. I came to destroy the works of the devil. I came so that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. And we say, welcome, Jesus, welcome. What weapons have you brought with you? And he says, I brought my cross. I brought my cross. I would like to invite you to just close your eyes and picture the cross again. Look at Jesus on that cross again. Just look at him rendering perfect obedience where all that you could offer was rebellion. Look at him bearing the punishment for your sins by dying the death that you deserved. Can you see him? Can you see him bridging the chasm between you and God as his blood drips to the ground and his body convulses with pain? Look at the stripes on his body. Can you see them? The stripes that heal your sicknesses and your diseases, look at them on his chest and on his arms and on his back. They heal your sicknesses and diseases. Can you hear him crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now can you see God turning his gaze completely from his son? and fixing all of his loving attention on you instead. Look at him on that cross covered by darkness in his last hours. 
He is covered so that you might become the light of this world. Look at him dying of thirst. His lips are parched. He is thirsty so that you would overflow with rivers of living water. Take one more look at the only person who was born righteous. Can you imagine, can you see his chest collapsing as he breathes his last breath so that you may be born again, this time right side up? Can you see him? Can you hear him? He did it all for you. See, on that day, when the Roman soldiers lifted him up, the seed of the woman erected his throne on that hill called Calvary. And the weight of his grace and of his love and of his mercy crushed that serpent's head. Would you please rise with me as we take today's reading. I will read the black text and I would invite us to read the red text together in our loudest voices as we praise this Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and as such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb for ever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives for ever and ever. And all of Hillside said, Amen.